intrinsic motivation. So doing something that, because something is inherently satisfying, fulfilling, uh, even enjoyable, is a much healthier way to live our lives and to be motivated by it's it's coming from within. That's the whole idea of intrinsic. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Sharaf Jeevan, who's an expert on how to practically reignite the inner drive or intrinsic motivation in our lives. He is the executive chairman of Intrinsic Labs, which supports organizations around the world to solve motivational challenges. Previously, he founded and led Stir Education to reignite the motivation of 200,000 teachers in 35,000 schools and with 7 million children. He was elected an Ashoka Fellow in 2014 and was recognised as one of the UK's 10 leading social entrepreneurs in 2019. And he's just published a book called Intrinsic, which is available now and I enjoyed reading very much. We covered many topics, including the current crisis of motivation, how we can best use the 90,000 hours or so of our working lives, the false promise of meritocracy, which also cropped up in episode 29 of this podcast with Jack DeRose, and lastly, learning about motivation from the 150th best tennis player in the world. So I started out by asking him, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Enjoy. I think we're so much more purposeful and willing to wake up and, and get out of bed if we know that what we are doing fundamentally helps and serves others. And that's how I define purpose. And I think for, for many of us, uh, we do that in a number of ways, but work is a very important entry point. That's often what we're doing first thing in the morning after we drop our kids or, or whatever you have to do as well in that regard. And this idea, I think, of, of really trying to find purpose for work has been one of the things that I've been really exploring through my book, Intrinsic, and, and the wider research I'm doing. What often I think we sort of get carried away by is this idea of, you know, finding your passion, for example, is a common thing. And not all of us are in, in dream jobs, perhaps, that we may want to do for the rest of our lives. But I think we can still find our purpose and in the process, gradually find our passion in the same way. In the introduction to your book, you talk about a crisis of motivation. Can you say a bit more about what you think that is and why perhaps there is such a crisis? Yeah, I think we're deeply confused about what really matters in our lives at the core. And that confusion was there, um, you know, even a couple of years ago. I think it's been exacerbated by the, the pandemic uh, in particular. And one of the really tricky things with motivation is that it's all interlinked. So, you know, if, we, if we're demotivated at work, for example, that often very quickly spills into how we, we parent. Or if we're not feeling safe in a relationship, that has big implications for how we engage as citizens uh, in the world around us. And and neighbors and friends. So what has happened, I think, is that that confusion is, confu is maintained. But I think the pandemic has put us in this kind of languishing phase where I, I describe it almost like the equivalent of treading water. You know, you can tread water for a while. Many of us have done that for the last 18 months. But tread water too long, unless you're exceptionally strong on the legs, you, can, you end up drowning. And there's a real risk, I think, if we just keep doing what we've been doing and, and see it very much as let's just come back to normal 
I think what the pandemic has done is made us think much more deeply about our lives, what really matters, what our priorities really are. And I think it's about taking the courage now to say, let's reset ourselves motivationally for this new world we're in. How can we try and reset our lives up to really uh, maximize these elements of purpose that I talked about already? Also, these elements of autonomy, um, the sense of us being at the wheel of our lives and a sense of mastery, us becoming the best versions of ourselves we can be. How do we try and really optimize these three elements in our lives and try and really make those key features of what we do rather than the sort of extrinsic things that we've let often drive us and kind of let them morph into motivators, things like status, rewards, power, money, et cetera. We know there's been 30 years of research now that shows these things are, they're, they're a bit like sort of paracetamol. They can dull some short-term pain, but they don't really uh, solve the underlying condition. And I think we need to think much more deeply about these, these motivational um, ideas and weave them into what we do. So just so I understand you correctly, do you think the crisis of motivation predates the, the pandemic? Do you think that was something that was building? Yeah, I think, I think very much so. And in fact, I, write, I started writing Intrinsic about a year before the pandemic, and I think it was still a huge crisis there. And I'll just give a few examples, you know, so in, in the world of work, for example, 85% of all of us globally are either actively disengaged or somewhat disengaged in work. And some of the estimates show that uh, that costs us about $7 trillion in, in lost productivity each year. But what's much more important, I think, is the, is the 90,000 hours you and I will probably work over our lifetimes. What a waste of human potential of, you know, we could be using those 90,000 hours to really create purpose, autonomy, and mastery, and really um, help and serve others through our work. Instead, many times, I think we're, many of us are sleepwalking and seeing it as really a way to you know, pay the bills and that, that's a huge waste of human potential. So I think this, these have been on long-term, almost cancers that have been in, the, you know, in our systems for a while. I think the pandemic has spread them and made them more acute. I think that's definitely true of some people, but I think for other people, there's been a great kind of resetting or a reminder about what's important, isn't there, wouldn't you say? So, I mean, it's not a universal shift, but I think I'm, I'm not sure quite where I sit on this personally, but I think for some people it's been a great reminder about, you know, the importance of family or the importance of, sort of nature or, 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 or you know, uh, perhaps less about the importance of work and status and money and, and the things that perhaps previously were held dear. So it's been a, an uneven impact. It's had an uneven impact on, on people's lives. Would you agree with that? Or how have you observed it in your networks and your, your communities that you're part of? I, I partly agree on that. I think that there has been certainly some sense of a reset, some reflection many of us have undertaken. We've had more time as well, frankly, right, to be in one place. I lived on a plane for the last 10 years before the pandemic. I had time to have more time with my kids and so on at a personal level. So that definitely have been very good um, features of this very difficult period as well. But let me tell a story just to, to show how easy this is to, how easy it is to lapse back into old behaviors. So, you know, I think we had the first lockdown in the UK uh, last year, but I was on the tennis court waiting for my uh, my son to come to tennis practice. And there were all these dads around them and they all looked incredibly glum. And I said, what, what's wrong with you guys? We've just come out of the, you know, the first lockdown. We can be free again for a bit or, or relative freedom. Uh, we can take our kids to uh, do fun things like this. And they said, Sharath, you know, to be very honest, we preferred life during the pandemic. And that was because I wasn't, you know, being a chauffeur for my my child and taking him from one place to another, I wasn't feeling so stressed. I actually had time with my child to do things together and master key aspects of our lives together rather than outsource everything to the tennis coach or the ballet teacher or the tutor or whatever it might be. 
And so that's just a, it's a middle-class example, I guess. But, you know, we've bombarded our children with extracurricular activities to the point where it's lost meaning for them. We're not engaging with themselves as deeply, with them as deeply as we would like. They're not developing these long-term learning skills that are going to be really important to master the, the zigzag of life. That was what we were doing before. I think there was this incredible sort of period, which was very stressful, but we were able to get out of some of these bad habits. It's incredibly tempting to just go back to where we, we were. And so I asked the dads, right? I said, why? Okay, look, you're free. You're, you have free will. You don't have to be doing this. What's, what's driving this? And they said, look, if, if I don't do it, I can see these other three dads here. Their kids are going to go get the tennis lesson. They're going to get that extra, you know, the extra backhand uh, precision. They're going to win the tournament. And, you know, that back to status rewards and extrinsic things, as we call them, things that drive us on the outside. And I think all of the research on motivation shows that really motivation from within, intrinsic motivation, is what really keeps us happy and fulfilled. So I, I think it was huge potential. I, I just worry deeply that um, some of this will not last and we're going to lapse back into things that were very damaging and dangerous for, for our children, for example, that we had before. I can definitely relate to that example with my own kids and my own experience to some degree of lockdown and since then. So there's links between motivation and learning, I think, somehow. So thinking about our kids and what they're learning and how they're developing versus why we get out of bed, sit bed in the morning and what motivates us. A quite long-standing question is, has been how do we sort of educate our children for you know a future that is uncertain or jobs that don't exist yet? But so I, I guess a parallel question for you in the context of motivation is how do we get motivated, especially right now where the future is so uncertain? So if you don't know where you're going or, or, or what's going to happen, how do you get motivated to, to tackle that unknown on that uncertainty? Yeah, and I think we've had such kind of confused policy um, in many countries, and the UK is a good example. You know, we have our government's been talking about being a 21st century power, a creative industry power, all of these things, and yet our that the mental model of the school system is, is still a Victorian one. And this this dichotomy, I think we just haven't cracked that and resolved it and said what what do we really need to do? So you're right. You know, 80% of jobs uh, in the future, sorry, 80% of future jobs will be ones we don't even know about yet. Of those jobs, about 75% will actually never be advertised. And so the key is not to try to, you know, all the content and subject matter in schools and the things we care about in terms of academic proficiency, to some extent, they are important still, of course. And we need to know some, some level of facts. We need to be able to read, write, articulate our, ourselves well. But I think what we're really need to do in school for our young people is help develop the foundations of lifelong learning and that love of learning that almost becomes a habit so our young people can keep evolving in this fast-changing world they're going to be facing. And I think what has happened as parents is we've had this model of, I'd call it a, a model of deferred gratification, right? There's been a mental model for parenting, which basically says, look, if you basically sacrifice or mortgage your childhood or our children's childhood, they'll get onto this safe ladder. Once they get onto that safe ladder, they're set for life. And that is just so patently untrue. I'm deeply worried about what our young people, our children are going to be feel 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now when that when they see how how false that claim was. So I went to a, a top business school called INSEAD in France. And I, I was told, you know, I guess pretty almost explicitly that, look, you know, you're set for life now. You're, you're in this uh, great business school. You're going to get a great job. Life is all going to be all, all the way uphill. And what I find now is I'm in my mid-40s, about 20 years after business school, many of my classmates, and I probably caught myself in this, there are younger people out there who will do, will work harder, will work for much less. 
and many of us will lose our jobs or are already losing our jobs at this point. And it's quite painful, honestly, as well. So I think this idea that you can sort of somehow think of school like a, you know, like a launch pad that gets you on that safe treadmill and, or ladder and that's it, is just really all, all out-of-date thinking. And I think what we need to be doing with, with our young people and children is saying, look, let's actually really enjoy learning, evolving, adapting. How do you create those, those skills and, and behaviors in the school system? So this becomes a second nature, a second habit for you. And you can keep, keep growing and developing and keep evolving your purpose, that sense of how you help and serve others over your life and career. Yeah, I've always felt that the number one thing that drives me is the ability to learn something new, even if I don't really know how I will apply that learning necessarily, but just the ability to learn from people who are more experienced or learn from a context that is, is rich in possibility. That's always been my number one criteria. My worst career decisions have been when I've ignored that. <laughs> and my best decisions have always been when I've kind of followed that instinct. Well, I think you know, what you said is very profound there. And I, I, would, I would definitely echo. And that's the that idea of mastery that we're, you know, I think, think of it like being on a, you know, Indian road, a bumpy Indian road, you're becoming a better and better driver as you go. And uh, you're, you're, you're dodging you know, the, the, the cyclist, the bullet cart, you, you name it there. You know, mastery, the idea of becoming the best um, version of ourselves we can be. The challenge is that we're going to have to be mastering so many new things in, in the world of work, but also in the world of life as well. But our school systems are, are doing the exact opposite of that. You know, if you think about the anxiety levels our kids are under now to get perfect grades, to get at the top university to make sure they're seen to be getting, you know, 10 extracurricular activities will get them the right university or college application or whatever, you know, at the end of it, it creates this huge fear of failure. And the Children's Society in the UK did a survey about a year and a half ago, which showed British teenagers being the most anxious in, in the whole of Europe. And there was this incredible fear of failing at things. And yeah, to, to learn anything new, to master anything new, to develop real mastery, there is risk and there's a risk of failure or not quite getting, I've had two or three ventures that have failed before, but I am not a failure because of that. And I give a lot of talks to young people now and that, that worry about, you know, if I, if something doesn't go right, that's a judgment on me. Again, it's that extrinsic motivation talking that they see that other people will look at them differently and look at them less well. We've just got to get away from this. That's it. We're going to have to learn, fail, iterate, pivot, as you said, so much through our lives now in, in, in the future. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You, you've mentioned several times now sort of intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. I just wonder if you can sort of define a little bit what you mean by intrinsic versus extrinsic, just to kind of lay, lay out the scene before we dive a bit deeper. I would define um, extrinsic motivation a bit like driving a car on diesel. No, it gets you from A to B, but you you have these kind of fumes along the way. And if you're you know, in a country like India, where everyone is on diesel or large parts, you, you know, you're choking pretty much along the way if you open the window also. So you get there, but it's never, it's rarely a pleasant ride. And extrinsic in, um, incentives are usually, it's basically things that um, you're doing something because something else is promised at the end. So it could be a bonus, it could be uh, a, a, an aspect of status, for example, it could be an element of um, a conditional reward, a carrot and stick, all of these things. And that's kind of how we have, we've lived our lives in our society for the last 20, 30 years, maybe even longer. You know, still, I, I talk to so many managers in companies and I say, well, how will you motivate your staff member to do this and to evolve the company? And they'll say, well, I'll just give them a bonus if they do a good job and I'll tell them how much it is. And that's what it is. And that's still that prevailing mantra. But there's such compelling evidence now around the world that 
in many sectors that actually intrinsic motivation. So doing something that, because something is inherently satisfying, fulfilling, uh, even enjoyable, is a much healthier way to live our lives and to be motivated by. It's it's coming from within. That's the whole idea of intrinsic motivation. And rather than the diesel, think of it of like you know, driving in a Tesla. You're gliding along smooth. There's no there's no pollution coming out. You're getting to A to B. But you're getting there in a much more uh, enjoyable and perhaps beautiful way uh, in the in the process. You, you've talked about India a number of times, and I know you've set up this amazing project in India, which uh, has influenced your your thinking and your your writing. Uh, just wonder if you could tell us a bit about the work that you you were doing there, but also the story the country's been on, and perhaps how you've noticed a, a shift from uh, around motivation and what motivates people. Yeah, it's been an incredible ten years, um, Ron. Because I, I was born in India, but most of my life has been in the UK um, and the Middle East, and so on. I would go to India for holidays or weddings to see family and so on. But this was the first time I really engaged more deeply in the country. And this whole foray into motivation came because I started an NGO about 10 years ago, starting initially in the slums of Delhi, which was trying to get promising ideas from teachers to share widely and publish so that other teachers could benefit around the world. The NGO is called Stir Education. But what, I ha- what happened in that foray to find these ideas, we discovered we were igniting something in teachers to such a degree that we couldn't ignore it anymore. And we realized we'd confuse the baby with the bathwater. You know, India, like many emerging countries, has gone on a spree to build schools. It's amazing. They've built a million free government schools across the country, almost one for every kilometer. 240 million children, roughly, are now in the school system. So four times the size of Britain is the school-age population. But that's not led to very much because teachers have not felt motivated in their jobs. It's become a civil service thing and a the thing you do, but that 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 desire, that that idea of being a guru, something that was you know thousands of years old in Indian culture, has been lost in that process. And so I think one of the things that was really interesting for me in trying to crack this question of, of teacher motivation, we ended up working with about two hundred thousand teachers, building groups where they came together, where we reignited their motivation at scale in about thirty thousand schools in India, as well as places like Indonesia and and Uganda and so on. This idea that we need to rethink motivation is, is how I got into all of that. And there was a lot of evidence on the value of these, these drivers of purpose, autonomy, and mastery. But how you put that into real life and actually practically apply it, there was almost nothing there. And you know, I guess like you know, John Major talked about the university of life. That's what it felt like for me, trying to put all this stuff into practice. And I felt we needed a book that really tried to guide us now in how to apply this stuff in our lives and in, in the world of work and how we think about careers and success in how we think about our relationships, our parenting, our citizenship. I think one of the key things that I learned along the way was this idea of starting with purpose first. So India built a million schools, but it didn't ask the question, what are these schools actually for? It was, a, it was largely a waste of a million schools being built. And so what I try and do in the book is really look at these elements of our lives, you know, the area of work or relationships, parenting, et cetera, and say, how do we start with that purpose lens and then build these ideas of autonomy and mastery to create really deep motivation for all of us as individuals, but also in our organizations and societies as well. Hmm. But with the benefit of hindsight, then, what do you think could and should have been done differently in terms of building these schools in India? 
you know, nobody's going to disagree with, you know, wanting to educate and inspire the next generation. So I just, I wonder practically what, what you think could have been done differently or should be done differently in future to, to embed that purpose a bit more deeply. Yeah, and it, look, it's a huge achievement to have built million schools. And, and of course, that's a, to have 240 million uh, kids who are going into school in a safe place, largely. They're getting a free meal now in government policy. All of the things that are great achievements. No one uh, would never want to track from that. But I think, you know, there's a very strong parallel with the UK. Think about where India is going as a country. It's a very fast-growing, now middle-income country. It's evolving rapidly. Many of its jobs, though, are in the informal sector. So these are parts of the economy which are not taxed by government. They're not even um, measured by government or controlled by government in any way. That the life of being an you know an informal entrepreneur, if you're you know you've got a clothing shop, if you're selling something, if you're providing a service, a laundry in a small part of a town, for example, these are really difficult places to work. And what matters most of all, I think, is our entrepreneurial skills, things about to quickly learn, adapt, be good with people, communicate, and stay motivated. These are these are not you know imagine a money lender comes on your turf you're in big trouble. So you, there's going to be a lot of knockbacks, a lot of challenges there. That has almost no correlation with what the, the children are learning in their school days, though. We're not growing these skills. We're not helping them be these lifelong learners we talked about to be successful. So I think what we need in, in India, but I think the UK and other countries, are just it's just as relevant, a real conversation between those of us who are building an education system and, and real people, you know, employers, parents, teachers, about a conversation around this, you know, what, where are we going as a country? What is our national purpose? Our politicians need to lead that process, and how do we make sure the education systems we're building are achieving that purpose with us? And there are some good examples. Like Indonesia has done a decent job of this, for example. But a lot also has to do with how our politicians see their role and how they set that purpose for the country. That's been a, a challenging topic for many in many countries in terms of that real sense of deep national unified purpose has been a rarity all too often. Yeah. On a human level, on an intuitive level, I sort of totally agree and empathize with what you're saying. But so (laughs) I've got a son who's doing his GCSEs next year, my eldest son, and somebody I know who is a, a couple of years, who has a child a couple of years older, they agreed to pay him a certain amount of money for every certain grade and above that he achieved in his GCSEs. And that was in that particular very specific context very motivating for him so my wife and I are saying should we do that with our son Uh, and of course I know that's a kind of ridiculous conversation he shouldn't be studying for some cash reward at the end of the process yet if that actually encourages him to open his books a little bit then you know the old adage you don't value what you don't pay for you know so if you get something for free you tend to take it for granted likewise if you're not paid or or rewarded in some extrinsic sense so how do we balance intrinsic motivation with with the need you know to be paid and to to live and we do need extrinsic rewards as well so how do you how do you square balance the intrinsic and the extrinsic so so, you said it was a um, sort of a a silly example actually i think it's actually very real because i think a lot of parents uh you know many of us tend to do this so um, Roland Fryer was a Harvard economist who studied the effect of paying kids. Actually, he got some headlines for showing that there was some short-term effects on academic performance. But these are we're usually very short-term studies, a couple of years in. What we don't look at a lot is a long-term effects. So let me just give you one example of where this can go. I was talking to my tennis partner, I'm a tennis nut, and, and his daughter told him, look, you know, dad, you know, you put me in this school. 
do you realize that if you put me in another school, I would have got another kind of job and I may have been paid about 30% more. And now I might now be a managing director rather than a, a senior manager. And so what it creates, I think, is this, this real sense of it, it basically destroys the the autonomy of our children, these kinds of approaches. So in the short term, it might it might work. And I, I would argue many parents do this, not not by paying directly, but it's a trip to Legoland or it's the you know PlayStation or it's the the party if you get well and uh, get sorry get through the exams well or whatever it might be. And look, some some level of that is, is not a problem. But if that becomes the main motivator, what's happening is you're we're conditioning young people to believe that they will only put effort in if there's a, a guaranteed reward. And so much of the world out there, there, there is no guarantee, right? I've got a book coming out. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I want to do it because I love the process of writing. I have a message. I want to help genuine people live a, 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 a more fulfilling and motivating life. That's what really drives me. And then what happens afterwards is fine. I, I can live with that. But the moment we sort of make everything we do conditional and external reward or incentive, you know, extrinsic motivation, it just destroys a lot of creativity, of progress, of trying, of evolving. And these are all the things that uh, future jobs will, will, will require in the, in, the, in the labor market. Again, I won't deny that in the short term, sometimes it can it can do its job. Sometimes that might motivate the you know, your, your, your son or anyone else to do that in the short term. But it's it's the long term things that when they're when they're an adult that we we don't often look at enough. Yeah, that's useful parenting tips. Thank you. I will input that into my conversation my next conversation on the topic with my wife you've talked about tennis a few times i'm not a tennis nut perhaps in the same way that you are but i am interested in what we can learn about motivation from tennis not least because i think tennis is relatively unique in that it has this brilliant scoring system this uh, set of points where every few points there's uh you know uh, something on the line it's you know there's a lot of excitement uh, throughout a tennis game you know game point set point match point etc what what have you learned about motivation from your love of tennis? Yeah, one of the wonderful things around about writing a book is you can research things that you're passionate about, and, and that for me, tennis was a great example of that. And I, I use that actually because I thought it was a very powerful image of the world we live in, and this links to sort of some of these ideas around how we think about success and our motivation. So, you know, I took my sister-in-law Abla to Wimbledon. She's not a big tennis fan, but she enjoyed going for the day, and I literally had to show her who were the top ten players versus those who were 100, 150 in the world. You know, that the standard is so high now, you can almost not see a difference if you don't know what you're looking for. And yet, you know, I looked at the story of Roger Federer, who pocketed, a, we think, a $300 million deal from Uniqlo, the Japanese uh, clothes manufacturer. So he's able to do that. He's, you know, on par with, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron James, and so on. But the number 150th player in the world who hits the ball almost as well is almost is struggling to make ends meet. And tennis, I think it, it's that kind of bellwether because we're in this kind of winner-takes-all world where... You can think of it like a tournament in a way that you, you really have to be at the very top to get all of the fruits of your labor. And I think that's a, it's a good metaphor for life now where often we find that the, the fruits of any field, whether it's a sport or an industry, it accrues to a few and not the many. One of the ideas um, I was looking at is how can we try to reverse that? Because A, it's deeply demotivating for us. It's not, it's not creating the world we want where everyone's talents can be nurtured and, and recognized. And that worry about winner takes all is profoundly, um, it creates profound anxiety for everyone, including the winners. And so I looked at, you know, um, this, there's these crazy stories happening in Palo Alto, which is one of the, the richest parts of the, the US, the heart of Silicon Valley, huge spades of suicides happening on the Caltrain. And the kids who were throwing themselves on the tracks were not 
disadvantaged anyway. They were the sons and daughters of the top 1% of America. They were the, the Facebook execs, the Google execs, the lawyers and bankers and so on, that kind of profile. And the guards who were, had been now put on by the government to save them and stop them throwing themselves on the track were Hispanics often, were African-American uh, colleagues who were much uh, much poorer, frankly, and lived in very, very you know, uh, more challenging parts of town. So what happens, I think, is anxiety about winner takes all. It's not just bad for the, the, the sort of losers in this game, but also for the winners as well, because there's such a lot of pressure now. If you if you are in that top one percent or top five percent or ten percent, you want your children to do to be at the same level at all costs, and that creates these very destructive destructive helicopter parenting styles that create this anxiety um, as well and perpetuate itself that way around. So what the the research for the book was saying was really that we need to find a way out of this mess. It's a real talent and success mess, and it's a crisis of motivation for for many people. It's got to such ridiculous extremes now that we need a whole new army of nurturers out there in the world who will help all of us realize our talents. And I looked at you know what distinguishes a great nurturer from this kind of false promise that we've sort of allowed ourselves to be seduced by of meritocracy. So I think we believe now that, okay, if, as long as the exam system is fair or the way it's assessed as quote-unquote fair, it's fine. It's not because often the people already have the best resources, the best coaches, the best teachers, etc. They're the ones who will go through that so-called meritocratic system. So how do we try and set up fields and, and, and industries and, and our lives in general to allow all of our um, motivation and talents to be nurtured, I think is a really important part of the book. And I talk about some of the things we can do practically to find great nurturers who can help us um, you know, really see what's different about us and play to our strengths, and find niches and, and areas that really allow us to be distinctive rather than try to compete head-to-head with everyone. Mm. Well, you talk about Roger Federer and that kind of winner-takes-all thing, which, yeah, of course, is kind of amplified in tennis, but exists in a lot of especially Western culture. And just making the link to to Facebook that you mentioned in, in passing there as well, uh, a fascinating fact I heard recently is that Federer first became the world number one tennis player before Facebook as a company even existed. So the Federer era is actually longer than the Facebook era which is kind of remarkable if you if you are old enough to remember that sort of second point that you're making I'm really interested in how we move beyond that kind of winner takes all system a lot of what we've talked about is our children and you know our individual motivation but how do we make motivation much more of a collective endeavor so I think what my research for the book is really showing around was that the key thing is to not try to go head to head with other people and, you know, we, we've often misunderstood Charles Darwin's work. And I went back to read Darwin for the, the book. And he was, when he said, talked about survival of the fittest, he wasn't talking about being 5% better is going to help you or 10% better or being cheaper. What he was talking about was this idea of many, many decades or centuries before it became invoked, this idea of diversity. The more diverse our world is, the more diverse our strengths and our, um, our talents we all flourish, for example. So if I've got an exceptional skill uh, at really making customers happy and engaging with good relationships, I will benefit. My whole company or organization I work for will also benefit from that. So if that's the case, why not build a career around that strength? So I have an amazing accountant, just give you a, you know, a very practical example. And he, you know, he does the management accounts and my registrations as well as any other accountant does, but he's exceptionally personable. Um, he's very prompt, very responsive. A lot of his success has come from that core strength, not on the technical side, though he can do the technical side as well as anyone else. 
but because of that that deeper human connection relationships you're able to build so knowing your strengths i think is so important and building a career around those strengths so in my case i have a real love of working across sectors and also build bring different kinds of people from very different worlds together and that's how i set up intrinsic labs the organization i run now i work on motivation issues i consult to groups like the economist or the london school of economics etc but it's all what i've tried to do is say let me what are my unique strengths how do i really bring to the fore of my work as well so the challenge though is that, you know our school systems going back to that that, that point of education they don't encourage that diversity we tend to value one type of intelligence which is about usually academic proficiency we don't recognize and create that that ability for everyone to understand their own strengths and talents the second thing i think to do if you're you know on uh, you know someone in the workforce now find a great nurturer out there i think great nurturers are different from great managers you know managers will tell you what you need to do they'll do your appraisal they'll be fine great nurturers help you become the best versions of yourself you can be and they take you to places you wouldn't have got to otherwise and i i can think of teachers who have been done that in my life great um, leaders managers i worked for who really propel me in a completely different direction and and they um for the book i studied some of the behaviors of nurturers and what they look like in in different fields i think we need to create many more nurturers in our in our organizations and our societies right now there there are far too many managers right now and very few nurturers i i do totally agree with that i guess my concern is how do we avoid exploitation or working the our nurturers to 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 death if we don't value them if the predominant culture is still a sort of extractive exploitative one yeah you make a really important point ron so i think we often think of work as you know delivering a report or a, the management accounts or you know if we work in in the service industry these days etc but a lot of work is is nothing to do with those things it's what i call the in the book that the broader essentials of mastery so these things that often are not on a job spec but are absolutely critical to that work being productive and motivating and i would say nurturing is a classic example of one of those smart mastery essentials and so there's been really really interesting evidence actually that shows that one is from angela duckworth that shows that nurturers or people who nurture others also develop their own skills much better and research from adam, adam grant shows that the more generous we are in the world the more successful we are individually over the long term again again not always the short term but over the long term it it does benefit us also and i think many of us who've been through and run things ourselves need to think about are we better off being a nurturer in our careers now and I, for me that was a bit of a profound realization i'd run stir education i'd run a, a few successful ventures and at stir we reached about 7 million children i was very proud of where we got to but i thought look I, i've done this for 10 years the easy thing was to either keep going or set up another venture but there's so many other promising people i met along my journey what if i made it my my personal mission statement to help them find their motivation and and direction and my next chapter of life being in that in that domain and it's so exciting and motivating to wake up and help great leaders who've got so much potential and talent achieve that achieve that potential yeah no absolutely and just to sort of take a tennis uh, go back to tennis for a moment arthur ashe the famous american tennis player is quoted as saying from what we get we make a living but from what we give we make a life and i i've always liked that quote yeah what well, one thing i've noticed who nurtures the nurturers would could be an easy way shorthand way of asking my last question this is why we need a community or a sort of collective culture because i might be able to help you but you might not be able to help me 
in this specific moment with the things that I'm grappling with or vice versa. But somebody else might be able to. And that's why I like what you say about seeking out your nurturers. You know what better than anyone what you need in this moment. And maybe you can take some responsibility for finding that as well, as well as giving back as well to other people. So it's a kind of web, it's a network. It's not a reciprocal two-way street, even though it could and it should be such as well. And, and Ron, I think, I think your work at Liminal, I think is, is a kind of a good example of this. For the, for the book, I think one of the things I tried to do is for the first time really decode what actually makes a great nurturer versus just a good manager. And there were some really interesting behaviors. So for example, great nurturers tend to really keep the love of the activity, whether it's in the work or it's in, on the tennis court or a in the concert hall at the forefront of their nurturee's mind. And they also tend to be really good at asking the right question at the right time, rather than trying to give the answer all the time. And so there are a few more of these behaviors, but we tried to decode them and look, looked at everything from how, you know, what, what a nurturer looks like in the world of chefs and restaurants, all the way to entrepreneurship and venture capital and sports and so on. But these were really consistent traits that were coming through. So the first thing I think is to really be clear about what, that, what, what, that, what good actually looks like in the world of nurturing. But I think what you're doing with Liminal and other, other um, examples around the world, we need many more networks of nurturers now to sustain the motivation of, of, of those nurturers, as you said. And I've been doing a lot of research recently on the, on, on the value of networks and the role in terms of sustaining our motivation. There are really profound effects going on. So you see, for example, that, uh, you know, take the, take the mafia in Sicily as a sort of extreme example here. Initially, they, they did play, I know it sounds ridiculous, but something of a nurturing function. They were really trying to help small businesses in Sicily who, it was very weak property, property enforcement, tried to help them manage to stay afloat and not be you know, the victims of crime and so on as well. What happened is that nurturing purpose got lost. They had infighting between the different clans of the mafia as it grew. And then you had the whole thing implode. And then you know, the, the Italian police came on and uh, managed to sort of bring that empire significantly down. But when nurturing is really about helping and serving others and nurturing the talents of others, you can create these really vibrant ecosystems and networks. And I think we need many more of them. So I've been looking at groups like, like Chief in the US, where you know, for women uh, leaders in, in corporate America, it's, it's a network that's been set up to help them uh, in that direction, for example, so they can help each other and nurture each other. So more and more that peer motivation, that sense of being part of something bigger will really play to this idea of purpose. And I hope help all of us very proactively play that nurturing role in the future. Hmm. I quite often finish these conversations by asking, what's the best question that I haven't asked you yet? I think we covered a lot, Roland, but I'd say that one piece of advice I'd give to all the amazing listeners you have is that take this stuff seriously. I think, you know, we've managed to get through the pandemic, through this very difficult languishing phase. We've been treading water, honestly. Again, I think that's that core idea that if we tread water too long, we have that risk of, of drowning. It's a really important time to really look at our lives and, reset ourselves motivationally for this new period, which will hopefully be more exciting ahead. Thank you, Sharath. That was great. I was intrigued by what he said about if we tread water without purpose for too long, we will eventually drown. And I also thought it was helpful, the distinction between purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And I was particularly taken with the section at the end around who nurtures the nurturers and how we can build a collective community around that. So I've shared a few links in the episode description. Do take a look. This podcast is brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. We couldn't make this podcast without all of our clients, patrons, and members. So thanks to you all for your support. If you want to find out more about Liminal or to join, please 
visit www.weareliminal.co. And I say this every time, and I'm going to say it again. Please like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others as well. And maybe give us a good five-star rating on iTunes if you think it's worth it. So until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.